Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Shannon Paulus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Monday, October 7th. On today's show, we'll be talking to Sarah Roberts, an assistant professor at UCLA and author of the book, Behind the Screen, Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media. After the interview, my colleague Erin Mack will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. At a company called Megatech, there are recent college graduates who spend their days watching some of the most gruesome, violent, and graphic videos that you can find on the internet. They make less than $50,000 a year. They are only allowed to do the job for one year straight because it's so mentally grueling. They actually never have insurance. They can't use Megatech's rock climbing wall. They aren't on track to be promoted within the company. But the job they do is critical to Megatech. Without it, Megatech users would have to watch all those ghastly videos instead. You're probably a Megatech user yourself. Megatech is a fake name for a real company. Sarah Roberts, an assistant professor in the Department of Information Studies at UCLA, made up the name Megatech for her book, Behind the Screen, Content Moderation in the Shadows of Social Media. Today, we're going to talk to her about the people who keep the internet clean and pleasant for the rest of us. Well, relatively clean. And what clean even means in the first place. Thank you so much for coming on. We're really excited to have you. To start off, I'm wondering if you could help us imagine what the internet would look like if there were no content moderators. I think there are corners of the internet that give us a good idea of what that looks like. So there are some pretty notorious spaces online that pride themselves on lack of moderation. And those are places like 4chan (laughs) and other sorted, dark, disturbing parts of online life. It's it's a fraught place to be even with content moderation. We know that all kinds of things go on online that we'd rather not see or be exposed to, but I think we would have to think about an environment without the work that they do as that uh, exponentially worse. You told Slate this spring that a lot of people who you talked to about content moderators actually disbelieved you when you told them about them, noting yeah. that it was Shocking that people with no apparent motivation would just tell me there's no way that legions of people do this job. You're lying. And why isn't this something that even people who should know, even people with expertise just don't know about? Well, I think there are a couple of factors that go into that positionality. The first one is that there is a propensity on the part of the companies that sell us on using these platforms and being engaged with this technology to imagine an experience that is fully governed by that technology. That's not a deficit on the part of 
regular people. That's us just hearing the message that we've been served for the past decade and a half that technology can solve all of the problems. There was an active, if not overt, tacit effort to get people to, first of all, not think about this problem. And then second, if they were ever to think about it, imagine that computers were behind solving it. So I think it's kind of like a one-two punch. Like, first of all, don't think about it if you can help it. And if you don't see what's something that's not there, why would you imagine it being there? That goes for things that get deleted before you ever see them. And that also goes for the human intervention. But but secondly, uh, if you do happen to think about that, imagine that there's a big room of servers somewhere churning away, making decisions about what can stay up and what can come down. And I think somehow that notion was more palatable to people for a variety of reasons, including a sense that that would be somehow fairer or more judicious than decision-making or more evenly applied. So it's human content moderators that spend a lot of time removing things like really gruesome stuff like images involving bestiality or, or child pornography. Why aren't computers capable of doing that right now? Well, actually, there is a very specific case where computers are doing a good job. And that is the case of child sexual exploitation that you mentioned. The reason that computers are good at that particular case is because for better or for worse, there is a tendency on the part of people who want to view and consume that material to recirculate known bad material. So there is actually a database out there. It's called PhotoDNA, in which a majority of the world's child sexual exploitation material is known and is resides within there. And so when that material comes online, it can be mathematically matched, algorithmically matched to known bad material and rescinded pretty much immediately upon upload. But that only works in the case where there's something to match against. So anytime there's new material that's been organically produced in the world, whatever it is, there's nothing to match against. And that takes a a human typically to make a decision. More and more, the big companies are augmenting those decision-making processes with computers. But even in those cases, it's human intelligence that's gone into building the system. So there's human, you know, we might say there's humans all the way down the line. Do you think that there will eventually be a time when computers can do all of this digital dirty work? And we'll just look back on this as like, sort of a dark era when when people had to do this? Or will there always be these kind of digital knowledge workers picking up the pieces somewhere in there? Well, I really like your framing of thinking about these people as digital knowledge workers, because that's really what they're doing. They're, they're contributing a human type of knowledge, a specific kind of knowledge that comes from balancing so many complexities in an instantaneous decision, cultural norms, linguistic issues, politics, the demands of the platform, local jurisdictional laws, all of these things that go into the decision-making process. And it really is the province of the human mind to make a decision like that. I would say that, of course, for many people in the industry, there is a desire to want to move away from human labor. But we ought to be wary of that in some regards. And I say this as a person who's very much invested in wanting a better work life for the people who do this. Because if we were to flip a switch today and make this all computational, it would be worrisome in the sense that 
there would be no auditing mechanism for these decisions that go in. It's already kind of a black box situation as it stands. But as opposed to a computer program, humans can take the decision to discuss their work under under the auspices of, of anonymity with someone like me. They can leak to journalists. They can push back on the job when they think decisions don't make sense. They can organize for better conditions and pay. Those are things that if we flipped the switch and went to total machine work on this, we would no longer have any insight on. But I think regardless of if that's possible, and I think it's probably not, even if it were, that human knowledge work that you described would have to go in on the input side anyway. So one of the things we're seeing now is a shift or an increase in the amount of work that goes into building such systems on the front end in the form of people doing decision making on large data sets to train machine learning tools that are later applied. So it's really just kind of a shift from where in the production cycle or in the production chain the moderation happens. Does it happen on the call center floor in the moment, making a decision on a particular piece of content? Or is that is that knowledge work shifted and rendered even more invisible on the front end of an algorithmic tool that then gets deployed? But if you talk to people in the industry who are close to this practice and they're candid with you, they'll tell you that there really is not going to be a time when humans will be excised from the process. One thing that I found really interesting uh, reading your book and reading some of your work is that you talk about commercial content moderation as a form of online brand and reputation management, as opposed to this just sort of natural process that happens. Like Facebook is naturally kind of an okay place because everybody on Facebook is kind of okay. I'm wondering... (laughs) If you could just explain a little bit uh, for our listeners what you mean by content moderation is brand reputation management. When I first came to this topic, it was it was 2010, which doesn't seem that long ago, but I guess it kind of is now. And uh, it was sort of in the upswing of these firms. They're coming into their sort of best moments. And we didn't know a lot about how how their media got produced or how the landscape that we we all played in and participated in really was constituted. So I sort of had to reverse engineer to think about once I found out about this practice, which was through a a New York Times article in 2010 that talked about it, I had to think about undoing my own belief or my own received notion that the internet was just people sort of, like you said, acting sort of okay most of the time with each other, which I guess, you know, we kind of know isn't true, versus there being an active curation process. And I realized that knowing what I did about social media companies, which is that they are not really in the business of making lay users like you or me happy, but they're actually in the business of of advertising. Their real clients are advertisers. And so I realized that in order to, to be able to market to advertisers and be successful in that space, they had to have some control over the ecosystem that they were creating. And that's when I realized that content moderation at this kind of commercial level and at scale had to be more about the firms keeping, maintaining control over the own, their own ecosystem that they were creating and then trying to sell to advertisers more than anything else. Of course, there are effects that support healthy community or uh, protect people from being exposed to harmful imagery and so on. But really, first and foremost, 
the companies are protecting their own brand, which is their platform and their environment first, which they then use to sell to advertisers who want to connect to consumers like us. And so once I realized that, it helped me understand the logic of why these practices might be kept secret or obfuscated, why the companies were loath to discuss them with regular users who were believing that they were engaging in an ecosystem that was about free expression and the circulation of any thought or or opinion that one might have unfettered. Uh, That was the lure to get people like us in. At the same time, that was unpalatable to advertisers and to people who wanted to perhaps have their own brands on the platform and not find their brand represented next to something reprehensible or disturbing. And so that's that's sort of the conceit of the of the notion of brand management. And again, when I was able to talk to people inside the industry, they they absolutely conceded that there would be no circumstance under which they would give up control of of the gatekeeping of their platform and let it just kind of freely flow. They, They were always going to maintain that gatekeeping practice, whether it was to allow or disallow content. That framework makes a lot of sense to me when I think about the issue on Instagram of people not being able to upload photos of female nipples where that's considered like really lewd, even though like a lot of people argue that it's a form of free expression or like Mm -hmm. I follow a tattoo artist who helps do reconstructive tattoos on women who have had mastectomies. And she has is always like coming up with really clever ways to hide her photos. And yeah, it seems like there are a lot of people that want that kind of free expression on the platform, but it it wouldn't be so good for advertisers necessarily. And when we when we're able to kind of apprehend and get a get a hold on the, this fact and kind of reframe the logic of the platform, it helps to understand so much more of why, for example, marginalized groups of people or people whose identities are not considered mainstream or not given primacy in terms of advertising dollars find themselves on the wrong side of content moderation decisions so often. And Instagram, again, being a really fundamental case in point where we'll see LGBTQ identified people who might be expressing elements of their sexuality or gender identity through the platform or other kinds of people, artists, frequently, like you said, a tattoo artist comes comes to mind and other kinds of people who push the margins of uh, sort of mainstream palatability find themselves constantly being deleted. And they are frustrated because they themselves believe that they're on a platform that has as a fundamental principle the idea that they should be able to share anything when in fact that isn't really a current operating principle and I would argue never has been. But that was never told to consumers, although I suspect it was very much touted to advertisers. Do you think more consumers are becoming aware of this fact that social media platforms do kind of exist to sell them in a way to advertisers? I think absolutely as compared to, say, in 2010, when I started my work on this topic, we are seeing more and more awareness of this fact. And I, I would point to the work of so many other scholars in this space, people like Sophia Noble and, and Frank Pasquale and so many other people who, who try to really unpack the true nature, the true economic nature of the exchange that these platforms have proposed. But that said, that's the fundamental point of my work, like to set that baseline, to, to reframe the public's understanding of commercial content moderation, moderation as brand protection will hopefully reorient their own relationship to the platforms and help them weigh and consider the costs of engagement. 
and have a, you know, have a healthier sort of civic or social conversation about the role of these platforms in our everyday life that is based on a more truthful evaluation of what they are. And it's not that people are dumb. It's, it's, I don't think people are suckers. I mean, I would include myself in this, in this group. I think that in essence, we were given a partial story or sold a half truth. And so now it's time to sort of demand greater accountability and understanding of what the platforms are. And if they don't tell us themselves, it's, it's down to journalists and researchers and others to, to unveil that and, and reframe. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but then we'll be right back with more from Dr. Sarah Roberts. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank member FDIC or as a statement credit. Terms and more at applecard.com. So you first heard about content moderation reading this article in the New York Times in 2010 about a firm in Iowa where folks are doing this work. What was the moment when you realized, oh, I have enough here to make this like a big project of my research? It's not just this one office building. It's so many people that are affected by this. I do credit that article. It was so critical in my own in my own awakening about the issue. And I think that for me, it was that one story because I realized I was seeing the tip of the iceberg. I was seeing, you know, just one, one bit of insight, one crack in, in the facade that showed the infrastructure behind it. And my own background, having been online since 1993 in the early social internet, pre, pre-graphical internet, so everything was text-based, um, and it was really not commercialized yet, seeing the evolution of what became of that internet into what we know it as now. And then also my own background as an IT worker, kind of combining with my academic work and reading that article, I was able to imagine that if, if there were these couple isolated cases as reported in the New York Times, there had to be actually an ecosystem out there. And so it was pretty much upon reading this, this brief but powerful article that I knew that this was something. And I tell this to a lot of young researchers, too. It's the thing that you can't stop talking to your friends about. <laughs> it's the thing that you keep coming back to, the, the article you keep forwarding, the thing you keep asking people about. That's the thing you need to pursue. And so that's what this was for me. So I started going to all my professors and to my peers, to people I knew in industry. Hey, have you ever heard of this practice? Hey, did you know this was going on? And what happened was that in each case where I spoke to someone, they said two things. First, they said, huh, I never thought of that. These are like the smartest folks in the room. Again, they're, they're very knowledgeable. So they said, I never thought of that. And then they said, don't computers do that? And I realized I knew enough, of course, about uh, computation to know in 2010 that no, computers couldn't do that at scale. Absolutely not. So if this was a demand, there had to be people all over the world somehow engaged at many levels. And so that was it. I couldn't, I couldn't drop it. Uh, I kept bringing it up. I forwarded it. I forwarded the art article to everyone I knew, and um, it sort of kept me up at night. And that's how I knew that it it needed to be pursued. 
So at that point, did you start going out and trying to find people who worked in these jobs to interview? I did. I actually tried to find those people in Iowa. And uh, at the time, I was the PhD student at the University of Illinois, so not terribly far away, you know, by car and also not terribly far away, like culturally. And so I'm, I'm a Midwesterner, you know, I'm, I'm from Wisconsin. So this was kind of my element. And I thought, well, I have no research money, but I do have a car I could I could conceivably drive to Iowa. So I tried to start getting in touch with anybody in any of the communities where these call centers were set up by this company that at the time was called Calaris. It's been sold and renamed many times since then. And I couldn't get anyone to respond. No one. And that was another indicator to me that this was something, that there was total radio silence. So I suspected that after that New York Times article came out, there was probably an edict issued throughout the company that was like, don't don't talk to reporters. Don't be telling what we're doing. Uh, the, the firms that we contract with don't want you to do that. We don't want you to do that. So, of course, that just made me more intrigued. But it was it was hard work in those early days to try to find those, again, those fissures or those cracks where I could slip in and and get to people. And I knew that if I went and knocked on the front door, I was going to get no traction. And I was also going to kind of show my hand to firms that I was interested in this topic. So there was a lot of sneaking around that went on and a lot of convincing of people that, you know, the fact that they were violating their NDA, their non-disclosure agreement, that they were all compelled to sign to do this work would be respected by me. So you probably noticed throughout the book, I use pseudonyms and made up names for companies when it interviews that I've conducted and so on to kind of protect their their identity. How did you convince them to violate their NDAs to talk to you? The biggest thing was that I would assure them that I would protect their their identity, which I've done throughout the years. But once that was established and once it was sort of established that I was really keenly interested in in worker welfare and and also just process like what what does your work life look like what are you asked to do on a daily basis and that I cared about this work most of the workers were eager to talk to me because they knew that they were doing a, a mission critical kind of activity for the platforms and yet they themselves were completely muzzled most of them were being brought in as contract labor as really kind of disposable labor, poorly paid, the conditions weren't great. And yet they knew that they were sort of this like very thin line of, of protection and really on the front lines on behalf of the companies for whom they labored. And so I think they had a sentiment of wanting the world to kind of know that the internet ecosystem that we've come to assume was just how it was naturally was actually the result of a great deal of labor and curation and thoughtful engagement on the part of a lot of smart people who were sort of, for lack of a better word, being exploited and also being uh, kept as a dirty little secret while, you know, the engineers in the company were using the climbing wall and they, they couldn't because they were contractors and they were being paid hourly by another company with no benefits. So they were they were kind of eager. I mean, not to put too grandiose a, a, a spin on it, but in, in essence, they may have seen themselves to a certain extent as whistleblowers, but also as people who were seeking a certain amount of wanting to enlighten the public about the nature of online engagement itself that they held the keys to in many regards. So there was sometimes a, a bit of eagerness to get the story out once uh, I was able to establish that I would protect their actual identities and where they were. Just anecdotally, one interesting thing that's happened over the years since I've done this work is that I call the 
Silicon Valley firm in my book where uh, a number of workers come from. I call it Megatech, which is obviously a made-up pseudonym. And I've had opportunities over the years to engage with lots of people from major tech firms in Silicon Valley, major social media firms. And many, many times these people will come up to me on the side at, at an event or a meeting and say, you know, I know our company is Megatech. <laughs> people at different companies, they all think it's yeah, Megatech. They all, they all think they're Megatech. And I can't <sighs> confirm or deny which one it is, right? Yeah. So that's been that's been fascinating. If And another data point in terms of telling me, yeah, everybody had this problem. Everybody in the industry had this problem. So in the Megatech chapter, you talked to a few recent college grads from pretty prestigious places like Berkeley and Cal, and they're kind of excited to get this job at Megatech. They're right out of college. They haven't majored in STEM, but it's the cool thing to do. And they end up, you know, living in the Bay Area and working for less than 50K. And one of the things that was so striking to me about those interviews is how they don't seem to fully recognize a lot of the stuff they're going through. In particular, one yeah. interviewee said, you know, this isn't really a bad job. I can handle it. I just drink a lot. What do you make of that? I think that for the people that I spoke to, I, I was very cautious in general with how I asked them about the repercussions of the work that they did. Because again, as many of us know, and as I'm sure many of your listeners already know, a fundamental part of the job of doing this frontline commercial content moderation is to be exposed to material most of us would never want to see, ever. And then they're exposed to it over and over again. So imagine your sort of worst nightmare boogeyman imagery, whatever that is for you, and that's what they see. So I tried not to provoke around that issue because I took it as a given that that was happening. And in some cases, there would be this kind of almost like a, a bravado where workers would say, you know, as you as you quoted, and I think that's I think that's Max Breen who said that they would say, you know, other people can't handle it, but I can handle it. I can do this job. I can stomach it. I've got the, the mental fortitude for it. Other people don't, but I'm doing it. So I'm actually taking one for the team, but I don't really notice any bad effects. And, and I would take that at face value. But then these other moments would happen. They would they would slip through where they, they would be just really deeply revelatory like that. Like I drink a lot or I find myself avoiding social situations or in an intimate moment with my partner, I suddenly pushed her away and I didn't even want to tell her why. And it was because I was seeing an image that I'd seen at work that day of something horrible. And I just didn't want to tell her. So part of the job as a researcher <laughs> is to gather these data points, for lack of a better word, and then do an analysis and interpretation of what people are really saying. So they're saying one thing sometimes and then contradicting what they've said moments later. And it's my job to hear that and receive it and draw that to the fore. And it's something that I heard over and over again. So not only is it important to note that they were struggling in some of these moments, but it was important to note that they were telling themselves over and over again that they weren't. And this was a coping mechanism for just to, to put it simply. If you knew that you had to go back to that job the next day, would you tell yourself, I can't do it, I can't do it? Or would you say, I can do it and then crack open a beer to ease the pain? I think what you're seeing there is breaching for mechanisms to make it through. And sometimes those moments where there's a denial are much more powerful than if the person had just come out and said, yeah, I'm struggling. Because you can see that they're wrestling internally with, with how to handle uh, the nature of their work. 
And it was it was hard to hear that. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and then we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Sarah Roberts. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Let's face it, sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming. Like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting, all while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot. But then again, sometimes multitasking is easy, like quoting with Progressive Insurance. They do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you, even if it's not with them. Give their nifty comparison tool a try, and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want, like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool will provide options from other companies, all lined up and ready to compare, so it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. How do you draw boundaries between you and your research subjects when you when you do this type of work? I think that's a really powerful question for me because I didn't fully consider that, to be honest with you, when I went down this path. I would never claim that my experience doing the research that I've done is the same as or as difficult as the kind of work that the frontline moderators have done and that I described in the book. But this is a topic that has put me in touch with the worst of humanity, too, by proxy. I mean, again, just as just as sometimes the protagonists of the book aren't always fully in touch with what's going on with them. I would say that for me, it wasn't until a few years into this work that I realized, man, I'm having to think about stuff like child sexual exploitation. Why does that roll off the tongue for me, that phrase? You know, why do I have to think about databases of that? Why do I have to think about that it's a problem that people upload images of of themselves beating their kids or, or abusing animals or killing each other? And it's enough of a problem that there are people engaged to remove that content over and over. Like that sucks <laughs> and it's depressing and it's dis- disheartening. And it took me a while to realize that there might be some repercussions for me. Again, they're nowhere near. I don't want to compare myself like as on a one-to-one basis to the people I've talked to, but I-, I actually think it's more like a good illustration for like all of us to a certain extent. Like I, I grew up never having seen somebody's death recorded live in front of me and broadcast. The shooting death of Philando Castile went all over the internet over and over again for advocacy purposes, for other purposes. And many of us regular people have been exposed to heinous imagery as a course of our use of this technology and of this kind of sociality. So I think that for me, drawing a line It's sort of representative of how we all have to rethink and redraw lines for ourselves or maybe ask ourselves how those lines have been redrawn for us without our full knowledge and consent. I'm sorry, that's a that that's a depressing answer. No, that's so I I mean, it's a depressing world. How do you how do you draw lines with social media use in your own life? And has that changed over the past eight years as you've done this work? I think it has. 
if I'm if I'm honest. No one will accuse me of being anti-social media in terms of my own behavior. I'm I'm quite active on Twitter and in easily found there. But I I would say that I have kind of curated my engagement to certain particular places, corners of the internet that I'm willing to spend my my own personal time in that isn't related to this work. You know, I'm mindful of the impact on me. I try to keep a healthy mental barrier between whatever's going on on the internet and what's actually happening and in my immediate physical realm. But, you know, I can't say that it has caused me to tell everyone to throw away their phones and get off social media because I myself, I, it's not possible for me. So one of the, I guess one of the things that it brings up in terms of my own relationship and, and other people's relationships is what, what is possible in terms of reconstituting the relationship that we have and what are we willing to do and not do. And so I think about that a lot. I mean, I've certainly, you know, in terms of where I'm present online, I've shrunk my footprint, but I'm still totally online. And, you know, maybe that's not fully a good thing. I I don't know. So one last question. You noted earlier in the interview that having humans somewhere in this system to do content moderation is a necessity, whether it's at the top of an algorithm or whether it's fielding videos as they come in, as happens now. What would be a humane way to set up this job? What type of people would be doing it? How would companies be caring for them in a way that doesn't set them up for psychological damage? Well, I think that the status quo right now in many of the biggest firms that have, the, as far as they're concerned, the greatest need for labor is to source the labor inexpensively en masse and create these large-scale enterprises. And that might not be the best way, but because of the scale that they're already operating at, I don't know, 2 billion users for one particular platform comes to mind, or 400 hours of video content uploaded per minute for another comes to mind. Their own economic logic sort of has closed, in their view, other options beyond that kind of like massive labor infrastructure. But I don't think that's probably the best way, even if that persists, even if that's going to be the model going forward for those big companies, there are there are things that can be done. And th- this is a question I put to the moderators themselves often when I talk to them. And that one of the individuals that is in the book just said simply, when I asked her this question, said simply, pay us. And I think what she meant was literally pay us more so that we can have a better quality of life. And I think that's absolutely necessary. Many of these workers, I mean, just in the United States alone have been working at minimum wage. And so then when you think about uh, how companies are outsourcing the labor to known cheap labor sites in other parts of the world, you, you see that they're they're going for the, the low bid here. And it means that they don't value the labor. So within that that notion of pay us, there's also this notion of value us and value our contribution. Setting up an ecosystem where this work is entirely secret, everybody's covered by NDAs, they're not really even supposed to be acknowledging their existence. Now they sort of have to because journalists and researchers have, have pushed it and advocates have pushed it, has changed, that's changed the landscape. But these are still people considered very low value in these firms, whereas they're doing a a fundamental job that goes to the bottom line of revenue generation for them. So I think, you know, valuing them more is a start. I think giving people a pathway through 
a firm instead of a revolving door so that you might see that you're doing this for a period of time, but you can take that expertise gained and move on in, in the company would be great. But when all of these workers are are hired at remove and through layers of contractors, that's maybe not always possible either. Benefits, healthcare, psychological care. Also, there's a variety of tools that could be built to augment the, the process and help well-being so that people wouldn't necessarily have to be confronted with all of the the full imagery every time. I'm working with uh, two researchers, Yvette Wan and Libby Hemphill, to go that route. The two of them are, are specialists in content moderation and, and are also thinking about what kinds of tools and processes we could build to augment and help uh, the actual workflow. So I think there's a lot of room for improvement, but it's going to take the, the firms themselves that need this work to recognize the inherent value and humanity of the people they're asking to do it. I should say that Facebook came out in May with a with an announcement that they were raising the minimum wage for all of their content moderators in the United States across the board to a baseline $15 an hour and then in more expensive cities to a higher wage. And I thought that was great, but it told us some important things. First of all, it told us that prior to that, $15 hadn't necessarily been the minimum wage that people were making to do this job. And it also told us that other firms, the other big firms, the other players in the industry weren't there either. I waited for press releases to come from other companies, from Google or Snap, to say, oh, us too, we're doing that too. And it was like tumbleweeds. So we know that the status quo is, is woefully inadequate right now in 2019. Also, $20 an hour in New York or San Francisco is still... Forget it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to set you up with a kind of life where you can, like, relax enough. like <laughs> More like you've got a second job. You're, uh, you're driving Lyft. Thank you so much for coming on our program to talk about it. We really appreciate it. Thank you it. for having me. All right. We're going to take one final quick break, and then Erin Mack will join me for Don't Close My Tabs where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Okay, now it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. Joining me is my colleague Aaron Mack, who will be hosting the show next week. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Shannon. So what's your tab for this week? So for my tab this week, I want to re-up a Slate article in light of a recent order that the Supreme Court handed down on Monday. So basically, the court denied a petition from Domino's to hear a case concerning the Americans with Disabilities Act. It was a big win for disability rights because Domino's had been arguing that their websites and delivery app did not need to be accessible under the terms of the act. The plaintiff in the case was arguing that he was unable to order a pizza because Domino's didn't make their platforms accessible to people who are visually impaired. So Richard Supple wrote about the case for Slate in September in a piece called Domino's Wants to Slice Away at the Americans with Disabilities Act. Supple is legally blind and he talks about just how much of modern life he wouldn't be able to participate in if the companies aren't required to make their websites accessible. 
you know, obviously it's not just pizza, it's also bank accounts, online utility bills, gig economy jobs, Amazon deliveries. So, you know, a lot of jobs nowadays also require us to be able to use the websites. And Subble just does a really good job of describing the challenges of, you know, finding checkboxes and doing CAPTCHAs and a lot of other things we take for granted. Uh, so it's really good context for this case. And so is Domino's going to have to make their website accessible now? So the Supreme Court, by striking down this appeal, it, it means that Domino's actually just has to face the plaintiff in court. So they throw it back to a lower court, and the trial is going to play out in one of these lower courts. The, I think the, the case was just talking about whether or not you can uh, charge Domino under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and now they actually have to you know, do the whole, whole process of holding a trial. Interesting. So it's going to be a little bit longer. Yeah, it seems like it's going to drag on for a bit. But I mean, having the Supreme Court, you know, deny this petition is is a big win for disability rights because it just kind of reinforces the idea that the Americans with Disabilities Act needs to apply to websites as well. Nice. And what's your tab for this week? My tab this week is What If This Were Enough by Heather Haverleski. It's a book that's now out in paperback. It is notably not on the Internet, though I'm sure you could get an ebook version. But after talking about content moderation this week for my interview, I just had the feeling that I get from time to time that I should be spending less time on social media. And Heather Haverleski's writing is a really good place for me to land when I'm not just scrolling through Instagram or Facebook. She writes the Ask Polly advice column for The Cut, which is also really good. But this book is just a collection of essays about basically being satisfied in your life the way things are and you know, doing that in this age of like where we're constantly communicating that we're happy and we're striving for stuff and we're achieving our goals and like it's great and we're getting engaged and we're going to weddings and we feel good all the time and sometimes we feel bad, but mostly we feel good. And this book just always helps me take a pause from all of that. Do you have a particular essay that you would recommend in the book? That's a great question. I don't. I do have this one image from the book where she's at a party and it's like, you know, everybody is doing what they do at parties and being fancy and interesting. And she goes and sits in the backyard and just like throws this wet dog toy around with this dog for a long time. And she's like, this is exactly what I need to be doing right now. And I just think about that image a lot, especially because I have a dog. All right, that's our show. You can email us at ifthen@slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Shan Paulus. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Sarah Roberts. And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Justin D. Wright. Thanks also to Rosemary Belson, who engineered for us in D.C. We will see you next week. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. 
To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.